Good morning. We're going to be reading from uh, John chapter 9. I'm reading John 9, verse 1 to 5. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. May God add his blessing to the reading of this word. This morning we're going to go through the ninth chapter of John. pastor said, uh, you want to take the first nine verses? I said, let me think about that. And I said, let me try the whole chapter. So we're going to try that. Uh, 41 verses. But it's narrative, so it should go fairly quickly, I think. Not five minutes long, but certainly... We've all gone through misery, I think. And we're not talking about the Stephen King book or the movie. But we have gone through times in which we felt miserable. And I think that it's, it's part of our human experience to find times that we're miserable. But from what I gather from this passage, this chapter, there's a solution to misery. There's things that we can do to either alleviate or look past the things that make us miserable. And so we're going to take a look at the, the healing of this man born blind and see what we can find that might help us through those difficult times where we do feel miserable. Sometimes you can't help it. You're sick, you're feeling miserable. But uh, our focus shouldn't always be on those things. Verse 1 says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind? Now again, that's an interesting question. And that's an interesting... Ooh. Okay. I was almost going to be miserable right there. Said, my, my slides. So we, we think about this and go, Okay. The question is, who sinned? His parents could be, I suppose, you know, sometimes you think about, you know, the sins of the fathers are, are visited upon the children and so forth. It could be that. But the one that's interesting is that, that is this man, has he done something to be born blind? Because to be born blind means that this blindness took place because he sinned what, in the womb? That seems kind of odd. That's a strange thing. So, we have two choices that they give Jesus. His parents, or this man. No. So, what was he like in the womb? I mean, was he kicking a lot? And Jesus, of course... He has another answer. And that's, many times that's the, the thing about Jesus, is that he doesn't take the, the questions we ask, he doesn't answer it the way we think maybe he should ask, answer it. He has another answer for them. 
Let's take a look at where this might come from. Just a quick look back at the first book of the Bible. Not Genesis, but Job. Job is probably the first book written. And we find that there's this debate about what happened to Job. And some of his friends have their own opinions as to how Job got to this sorry state. And so, Eliphaz the termite, uh, Temanite, sorry, rem- <laughs> it could be a... His wife was a Tay womanite. Uh, anyway, remember now how, uh, excuse me, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? He's basically saying uh, to Job, there's something wrong here. I think it's you. And if we interpret what he's saying, he's saying everyone who perished were guilty of something. Good people don't get destroyed. So because you're suffering, Job, I think you did something wrong. And so we would probably paraphrase or the application that uh, Eliphaz has for Job. You did something naughty to be in such misery. Come on, admit it. Well, coming back, we say, well, what does Jesus say about this? And that's always a good thing. Uh, We have opinions of our own. We think we know everything, but Jesus knows it all. And he says to them, it was... Neither that this man sinned, nor his parents. So those two answers, he has been canceled out. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So rather than looking at this sin, and thinking, you know, there's something really bad about this, this poor guy. He says, this is something God is going to work out. That the works of God may be displayed in him. So that suggests to me that no matter what you're going through, God can be glorified in it no matter what. As bad as it may seem, and I think there are times we get to a point where just, things are just unbelievably um, nasty. We just, how did I get into this? Why is this happening? And we ask the Lord, Lord, what are you doing? Why am I going through this? It's got to be some mistake. Maybe you're thinking of somebody else. But he says, No. I want to work my works through you. And that becomes something that, if we keep in mind, that God may want to work through this difficult thing that would normally cause me misery and uh, pain and, and all kinds of emotional turmoil, even physical problems. But he says, this is for God to work and that be displayed in you. And He says this, We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. So there's a point in time that we are able to work the works of God. There's a point in time in which there will be no time. It will be night, as he calls it. Think about this. We are told to go and make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission. And in that, we have a certain time limit. Yeah, my lifetime. Well, true. But there's a point in time in world history and as God closes down uh, his plan for man as far as man on his own, man governing himself, man making poor choices. There's a point in time that, you know, everybody's going to be accounted for. They stand before the Lord and receive their final reward. Think about this. 
When we get to heaven, what kind of things will we be involved in? Well, we'll be involved in worship. We're going to be worshiping. Clearly, that is seen in the scriptures. That's good. People say, well, I don't know. I don't get into worship. Well, if you don't get into worship, you're going to be bored in heaven because we're going to be worshiping a lot, I think. It's good to know how to worship and enjoy worship right now. That's a fellowship. Enjoy fellowship. Oh, I love fellowship. Now, there are times I can be alone in my office at home, working on my computer. I'm fine. But I love being together with people. I look forward to opportunities to get together with people, chat, talk. You know, it's nice. And fellowship goes way beyond just talking and, you know, chatting. There's something deeper about sharing something in common, which is, I think, what, you know, the idea of fellowship is. We're going to have that in heaven. Um, There's going to be service. I think we're going to serve God. There's going to be things that we're going to be able to do, not just sit on clouds and pluck harps. I think that's sometimes the, the image we have of the afterlife. It's like, oh, that sounds kind of boring. If we have so many different opportunities and things to do in this life, just think what God may have for us to do in heaven. He is such a creative God. I can't imagine the things that will happen that He'll have us do that is beyond our, our comprehension and ability to imagine. But one thing we won't be able to do, evangelize. We won't be able to do that. That's, it ends when this time of life, I guess, this part of human history comes to an end. No more time, no more opportunities. That does not translate into the afterlife, into heaven. No need to. So that's why I think there's some things need to be done, that need to be done right now. We can't, we can't put it off. Night is coming when no one can work. It says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. He's been talking about this and mentioning and saying over and over again, I am the light of the world. And in light of the Feast of Tabernacles, there is a point in which they light the menorah, the candles or the lampstand. And I think he's taking from that the idea that as you have light, you, you light the menorah and it gives light. So am I also one who bears light and gives light. But you think about it, it says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. When he leaves, what? What happens? Does he take the light with him? Well, in a sense, you see, it sounds like he's limiting the amount of time that he, as the light, will be shining. What happens? We, we live in darkness. He transfers, I think, the, I suppose, responsibility of being light to his people. We are to be lights in the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. So, like many things, after he is done and set the example for us, he will then go, it's your turn. And as Pastor said, I don't think we actually shine with light from ourselves. Like the moon, we reflect his light. Uh, I think more so there's more darkness in us than light. But we want to reflect the light of God, the light of Christ. So people can see something that they couldn't see before. So what's significant about the man born blind? Well, he was 
born and he was blind. Uh, something a little bit more than that because this is more than just a miracle. It clearly is, but it's very significant and one of three special miracles, what we call messianic signs. The first one we'll see is um, the cleansing of a leper. No leper, no Jewish leper was ever cleansed in the history that uh, you know we understand from the scriptures. And so in that, that would be something that the rabbis taught. That when a leper is cleansed, it means the Messiah is in our midst. So, what is going on? Jesus is demonstrating that he is indeed Messiah. And the three messianic signs, the cleansing of a leper he did in Matthew 8, the casting out of a demon he's done a number of times, but from someone who is mute is unique. The Jewish exorcists couldn't do that because they couldn't communicate uh, with the demon from within a man who could not speak, could not, his vocal cords could not respond. And so they believed that Messiah would be the only one that could cast out a demon from a man who is mute or a person who is mute. And the third one is this. A man born blind. And why? Why would that happen? And why would Messiah be the only one that can do this? Because the rabbis believed that someone who is born blind has sinned in some manner. You see, how can they sin when they're in the womb? And the reason this way, this is what we see in the writings. The God who can see the beginning from the end, looks ahead at a person's life, sees a sin taking place, and says, oh, this sin is bad enough that I, I'm going to judge him while he's in the womb, and he's going to come out blind. Even that <laughs> doesn't sound right. But that's how they reasoned it out. That's why this is something you don't touch, you don't do. Uh, only Messiah will be able to cleanse a man or heal a man who is born blind, because that's the judgment of God on this person. He does three all three of the messianic signs. They should know that Messiah is there, right in front of them. He's shining, that he's light in this dark world, yet they still don't get it. It's kind of like uh, Jesus having a business card. Um, he is the Messiah. He's come with this, you know, verification. He's cleansed the leper. Who does he say to go to? He says to the leper, go show yourself to the priests. Why? Because they need to see that he's been cleansed. Go through the whole process of checking it out, investigating, make sure that this man indeed was a leper, and find out who cleansed him. And in seven days, a week, they're supposed to come conclude their investigation. And what they should conclude is Jesus Christ, the one who cleanses leper, is indeed Messiah in their midst. And later on, because they're not getting it, he cleanses ten lepers. It's like, how are you going to explain that? It says, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. So, what's going on? That's kind of an odd way to, to do any kind of miracle. You know, spit on the ground, make clay, paste it on the guy's eyes. Well, 
Interestingly enough, Jesus never does things in a way that people expect, or even the rabbis. They, the rabbis would actually be repulsed at this. They said, you know, the spitting thing is just not right. And they would have, you know, laws about spitting and so forth. And, and Jesus goes, I'm going to show you something that you won't like, but because it shows my authority over all things, I'm going to do that which your writings say not to. Because this was not in the scriptures. This is not mosaic. This is something that was made up uh, in the oral law. This is something that the, uh, the scribes and the teachers made up. Thousands of laws, literally, to govern everything. And it was like such a burden, such a heavy burden on people. And so he says, I'm going to do this in a way that kind of violates your laws, but they're human. They're not coming from my father. And I'm going to make this happen. So he puts uh, upon this man's eyes some clay. And he tells him to go wash. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now, in that short verse, we don't understand the rather interesting drama that's taking place. This is still during the, the feast. And the pool of Siloam is not that easily accessible. There's stairs and so forth. And there are probably hundreds, thousands of people in Jerusalem, all crowding around. And yet, those are going to be the witnesses to this miracle. It's not empty like this picture is. It's going to be you know, full of people. He's going to have to navigate down the stairs with those, the clay on his eyes, find his way into the pool, maybe get some help, get in there, wash. Now, I don't think he was actually in the water, but I, I put him in the water because I didn't have a good picture of him washing his, his face. So, here he is. Yeah, Jesus as the one the Father sent. And eventually will send us. He sends this man to the pool of Siloam, meaning sent. It's like kind of a play on words. And he comes back seeing. Now, uh, this is something that I believe is going to cause a bit of a stir. The rabbis are uh, going to be very interested in this. In fact, we see the, the neighbors of this man having some time of consideration. The neighbors. And those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? And so they're not sure because this man's seeing. How could he see? This can't be the same man. Others are saying, this is he. Still others are saying, nah. But he's like him. So nobody can quite figure out what's going on. Seems like the man. But he can't be because he can see. So, the man responds, I am the one. I am. Now, we find that this becomes interesting in that they now ask, how then were her eyes opened? It's a good question. How did it happen? I like to know, in case I go blind or something. The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received sight. So he identifies, he somehow understood this man that put the clay on his eyes was Jesus. And he's the one that made 
him see again. So, the question now asked, where is he? You know, if he can do that, who knows what else he can do? And uh, essentially he says, I don't know. Because he wasn't around. I mean, he only got his sight after he washed the clay off. And Jesus had walked off at that point and, and wasn't where he was before. So, he doesn't know. The Pharisees want to know now. Because it's a, such a stir. There must have been a lot of people saying, you know what happened? There's a man who was born blind, that beggar. He now can see. You've got to check this out. This is amazing. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath. On the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Again, they have this big conflict, Jesus has, with the, the Sabbath keeping because they had become so stringent in what you could do on the Sabbath that even doing something good doing a miracle was forbidden but that was not again in the Mosaic law this is in the oral law they call it the, the Mishnah again there was probably about 1500 extra laws that were created that they added to just the Sabbath commandment. All the things you couldn't do. And how far you could go and everything. 1,500 laws. Okay. Let's see if we can memorize all of those. Right? How many of those people could memorize and have memorized all the things that were written in the Mishnah? I don't know. That's going to have a pretty good memory. So they, they bring the man before him. Before them. And they say... How did this happen? How did you, re you receive your sight? And he replies to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. That's pretty succinct. Nothing long or elaborate. Clay, wash, see. And so, okay. But, some of the Pharisees are saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? So now you have this conflict within the, the pharisaical group, sort of the religious leaders. And it says, verse uh, eight, uh, 16, and there was a division among them. Jesus had said that he doesn't come to bring peace but a sword. That means this, he actually brings division. You say, I thought he's come to unify well, because people will have different opinions, some will respond to his offer and to the grace that he gives and to salvation ultimately when he completes it, and others won't. And even within the Jewish family, we understand that this is something very uh, significant. And uh, Andrew Claven. He's a Jewish man who has, uh, I think, podcasts and other things. He, he comments about different things. And he said, uh, he uh, was told, you know, don't read the New Testament. It's, it's wrong. You should never. And uh, he was basically, I guess, when he became a Christian, kind of rejected by his, his parents. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who did a whole... Um, uh, he did four volumes in the life of Christ, which is a really good uh, series to go through if you don't mind going through a lot of stuff. So I, I went through the stuff for you. You don't have to do that. 
And anyway, when he was 18, he became a Christian. And his father kicked him out of the house. The sword comes because it, Jesus' life and his offer of salvation splits people. And you can see how uh, rancorous sometimes uh, people are against believers. Uh, they think that we don't believe in the science, we don't believe in evolution, we don't believe in global warming, we don't believe anything except this Jesus fellow. But the thing is, there's something very significant about what Jesus offers. It substantially transforms you. It doesn't happen right away. And I think we all are in the process of being transformed. There's some things that we still be, we're still affected. Worries still affect us. Misery. We still find ourselves struggling with difficult times and things that make us miserable. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? What, what is your opinion? And the answer was, He's a prophet. That has to be it. He has to have some kind of standing with God. And uh, that is, I think, something that they're not willing to accept. For them, this man is a sinner. He can't possibly be a righteous man. And yet others are arguing, well, if he's not a righteous man, how can he do this miracle? There's no way he could do it. He must be right with God. He must have some standing before the Father. Then the Jews then did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and had received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who received his sight, and questioned them, saying, Is this your son? Who, do you, who you say was born blind? How does he now see? Good question. Now, the parents are sort of a different story here. They're a little intimidated by the Pharisees being called on the carpet, so to speak, to give an answer. Was he really blind? Come on. And if he really was, how in the world did he become able to see? So, uh, they give kind of a non-answer. We've seen that. His parents answered and said, uh, we know that this is our son. No question. And that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. And so maybe they really don't. But they're not really willing to put their neck out on the chopping block at this point. And we see exactly why. Um, of course, they kind of put it back on their son's shoulders. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Why are you asking us? And we understand. His parents are afraid because of the Jews. Here, when John uses the term Jews, he's usually using it of the religious leaders. So not Jews in general, but the religious leaders. So you have to kind of watch. Sometimes it's very general. Salvation is of the Jews. Yes, that's general. But when he speaks about the leaders, he'll sometimes just call them the Jews. For the Jews, the leaders had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. They kick him out of the synagogue. Well, it's kind of more than just, you know, get out of here, you know, you can't stay in the service. Because 
uh, a word used to capture this is excommunicate. Now, don't think about the Catholic version of excommunication, which is a little different. But the idea is that you are no longer able to come to the synagogue. You are excluded. You cannot worship, you cannot be in here. If you do something that they don't like and they put you out, that's it. You cannot come back. And so they're afraid that you know, they want to continue in the synagogue. Because I guess they believe that somehow you, you know the scriptures, that's going to keep you right before God. And the very thing that they're fearful of, the blind, formerly blind man, is really not. That which they hold to. We must be able to have, you know, service. And we must be able to go to the synagogue. We have to kind of keep low. We have to be careful not to say too much. And uh, so they're afraid. I suppose, rightly so. But again, it's interesting to watch this formerly blind man. And what he says to the leaders. And... Verse 23 says, for this reason his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So, a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. So they've made up their minds, this man cannot possibly be a prophet, and we're not even sure that he could possibly pull this thing off, but we know he's a sinner because he did something good on the Sabbath. And Jesus made it clear, it is not wrong to do good on the Sabbath. It was within the allowance of Sabbath laws given by Moses. But of course they've added so many other laws that nothing is, can be done uh, on the Sabbath almost. This man is a sinner. And then he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's kind of hard to refute. I mean, all the evidence is right there. His parents confirmed that he was indeed born blind. And there's no way that they had no technical knowledge, no medical ability to take someone born blind like that and, and give them sight back. I don't know if they even do it today. So... They've got a problem because he was indeed blind. The neighbors could confirm that too. There's the man who begged, this, this, this couple's son. He was blind, we know it. But he says, I was blind, now I see. Simple, straightforward, to the point. Something that we probably all can say, you know. I was blind too. Not maybe physically. I was blind to the grace of God. I was blind to salvation through Jesus Christ. I was on my own. I, I spent um, six years in the Navy trying to live my life the best I could. I wasn't the you know, type of Navy guy that goes out and drinks. I saw what happens when you go out and go to the bars and stuff. And I was uh, doing a, a school, a technical school in Memphis, Tennessee. And there are guys that went out and drank and so forth. I just kind of stayed in and watched my little TV, little black and white TV. That was it. That was my, my fun. And they'd come back and they would just, you know, they could hardly stand. Guy was slumped in the corner when I woke up. Like, oh no, he's not going to make it to class. We get him up, stick him in the, in the shower, try to wake him up. 
So I, I tried to live a moral life. So I thought it was okay. But it wasn't until people began to share the gospel very clearly. They were all sinners. Doesn't matter what kind of sins. We are sinners. And therefore, you know, I was blind to God's grace. Now I see. I can see it clearly. I know who I have believed. And I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have, which he's delivered unto me till that day. So, what did he say? What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Good question. He answered them, I told you already. And you did not listen. Oh, I'm sure that went over real well with them. Like, he's not afraid to stand up to them. And he's a little frustrated because he's already given the story. He says, what's wrong? You know, I already told you. He says, uh, uh, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want, uh, you do not want to become his disciple too, do you? Wow. That's kind of prickly. You you want to be his disciple? I guess that's why you're asking me all these questions. Uh, Again, that's not going to go over well. But this man seems fearless. I mean, he's standing up for this, this event that has been so significant in his life. He now can see. And he can see more. He can see that these, these people are just not getting it. I mean, it should be so simple. This man cured me of my blindness that I had all my life. How do you explain that? It's got to be God. Don't think Satan does those things. Do you want to be his disciples too? And their response is probably predictable. They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But, as for this man, we do not know where he's from. So they take pride in the fact that they are disciples of Moses. But interestingly enough, the fact that they have added to Moses all these extra laws means that they don't have as much regard for Moses as they claim they do. And there's some things in the Mosaic Law that they're violating. And there are many things within their own law that they employ, you know, employ and try to get people to do all these things and yet they themselves find loopholes in that. As for this man, we do not know where he's from. And then the man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet, he opened my eyes. So he's, I think he's being a little sarcastic. Like, you don't know where he's from? He opened my eyes? To me, that equals he's from God. He's got to have somehow access to the power of God. That means he cannot be a sinner as you claim he is. No way. Makes no sense. Even your own theology should, you know, reject that Understanding. Here's an amazing thing. They're, they're probably not too happy with him already, but he says, We know that God does not hear sinners. You know? But 
If anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. So he's basically giving what he's learned. God doesn't hear sinners. And uh, anyone who's God-fearing does his will. God's hearing him. So this has got to be a man who is heard by God, doing God's will, and made me whole. Now, interesting, he says, God does not hear sinners. Is that absolutely true? I think he does hear sinners. But does he always respond to sinners? I think one thing we can be sure of, that when a sinner prays a prayer or believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, God does indeed hear him. He's honor-bound to, clearly. But I think it's God's grace that sometimes he may... He may, I, I'm guessing, don't, don't ask me to get a verse for you, but I think God sometimes graciously answers the prayers of sinners to kind of show that he's there. I've seen people who say, you know, I didn't know that there was a God, but I kind of just prayed out and he answered. And then, uh, you know, I, I found out more about Jesus and so forth and I became a Christian. God could lead someone that way. There are other things that uh, happen that people say, uh, you know, this is kind of what we're told to do. One neighbor buried a little icon of Joseph in their yard because it said that if you do that, God's going to help you sell your property. (laughs) Really? Oh, I never heard that. And so they did that. uh, What happens if you sell your property? Oh, you dig Joseph up, of course, and you clean him off and you put him on your mantle just to remind you that Joseph helped you do that. Okay. But it's interesting. He says, God does not hear sinners, but anyone who's God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. He's basically saying, Jesus has to be heard by God to do such a thing. Since the beginning of time, the man says, it is never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. We have no evidence that there was an, any incident in which that ever took place. So why now? And why by this man's hand? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Makes sense. Makes logical sense. That if this man was not in touch with God and not had a a right relationship with God, he couldn't do this. So what do you say? You know, it's it's almost like challenging them. Isn't this reasonable? Logical? And why do you keep denying it? Why do people deny the truth? I think because they're either afraid of the truth, they don't like the truth, they rather embrace whatever truth they believe is true. But there is truth. And there are things that I think we should say, this is absolutely true. And I embrace it. Yep. He's saying that this man could do nothing if he wasn't in touch with God. So, they answered and said, you, you were born entirely in sin and and are you teaching us? Wow. Wow. They're not happy. Just this blind man, the formerly blind man, is teaching us. They're trying to instruct us. And yet, what he's saying is absolutely logical and, and clear. There's hardly any way to dispute this, but they take offense, of course, and they put him out. 
That means they excommunicated him. He is no longer able to come to the synagogue or the temple anymore. Ah, oh, that seems like that's, that's pretty bad for a Jewish person to be ousted and kept from the temple or any synagogue. Yet, this is the very thing. This man is better off. He's now going to confront Jesus and Jesus is going to ask him a question and give him some information. So, this man, get him out of here. No longer welcome in the temple. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now that's an Old Testament designation, certainly. We see that. And it's a favorite um, use by the Lord. I mean, he loves to use a term, Son of Man, to describe himself. He uses it more than any other you know, particular phrase, like Son of God or anything like that. And with the, what happened in the Old Testament, because when we see at various times, Psalm 8 and, and Ezekiel, when the term Son of Man is used, it's always of a human being. And so we see, you know, God addressing Ezekiel, Son of Man. He's not talking about a Messiah. Just, you're a man. What do you think? What do you say? But, when we come to one particular chapter in the Old Testament, things change. That is Daniel chapter 7. In this we see this, Daniel sees this vision of the Ancient of Days. And he also sees one like the Son of Man that comes up receiving kingdoms and so forth. And from that point on, the Jewish rabbis believed that the term Son of Man actually carried with it more than just a person who is human. This is talking about Messiah. This is a, a divine personage. So when he uses that term, he's referring to the, the Daniel chapter. And so he says, do you believe in the Son of Man, the Messiah? The man answers, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And I love this answer. You have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. I don't know, when I first read that, it's sort of like, wow, what would it be like to be facing Jesus, asking, you know, show, show me the Messiah. He says, I'm he. Wow. The man's response is very clear. Lord, I believe. No, there's no way that I can not believe. I do believe. And this is where he crossed over from just being a, a regular person to one who is a believer in Jesus Christ. God used this as a work to bring this man to salvation and a testimony to others that Jesus is the Messiah. Lord, I believe. Something that we should all be able to say at one point in my life, I said this. I prayed this. I cried out to God, Lord, I believe. And set you on a journey of transformation. And notice he worshipped him. It's not just words, but he, he showed it by his response to Jesus. Because he understands that Son of Man has the imagery of a divine personage. That's why he, this person must be worshipped. 
Jesus is to be worshipped. Why? Because he is God. Even the angels are to worship the Son. Hebrews chapter 1, I believe. So, even angels are not to be worshipped. Uh, John, in uh, his book of Revelation, his, his great revealing of the end times, bows down to an angel, and the angel is astounded. No, get up. I'm not to be worshipped. I'm just a fellow servant. Worship God. The only God is to be worshipped. And this man does the appropriate thing. He worships. Then he says, And Jesus said, For judgment came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Interesting kind of play on that. Um, the idea, I think, is that Jesus does not judge at this point. He will be. Judgment will be given to him. But right now, he is here to provide salvation. And in um, John 3, we see Jesus saying this, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so indicating that, yes, there's a judgment. There's going to be people that will reject the light. And of course he identifies himself as the light of the world. And in doing that, it's showing their true nature. So many things are done in darkness. You know, people want to be hid by dark because their deeds are evil. The Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And he has some choice words for them. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Wow. What does it mean that uh, if they were blind, they would have no sin? The idea is that they would have maybe not the the sight uh, physically, but they would have insight and come to God in the right way so that they would have those things taken care of. And you think you're better than those who can't see. If you were blind, you would have no sin. That means you would have been able to take care of that. You would see beyond what is there physically. But you say, we see, and the opposite is true. You can't see, and your sins remain. Does misery love company? Sometimes, I guess, people just want to pour out their misery on others and make them miserable too. You might have friends that do that. But I think there are times when maybe our job is to say, okay, we don't have to be miserable. We have other options. Because no matter what's going on, we can say, God is going to do his work through this. As bad as things seem to be, God can show his work and his grace through whatever you're going through. So, misery is a myth in that it doesn't have to bring you down. Yes, we're going to probably face suffering and difficulties, but we don't have to give in to it when we get the right perspective that God is in control. So are you miserable? <laughs> I hope not. I hope we all are doing well and you know, wearing our masks and whatever we're supposed to do. Um, anyway, let's uh, get to the final slide. There are times when we don't have a solution for misery. We don't know what to do. We come to a, the end of our rope and we go, I, just, I feel so bad, I feel so miserable. And maybe 
you don't have the resource that God wants to give you to overcome the times of misery, the times of uh, just pain and suffering that you might be going through. Clearly, there's a gap between you and the one who provides relief from misery. And the only solution is, of course, the cross. And in that, when you trust Christ, you cross over from the side in which misery might reign to the side in which you have a solution to all the trials and difficulties of this world, no matter how bad things can get. Now you have God on your side. And you have a place set for you in heaven. In this we just have to realize that Jesus is a unique figure in human history. None like him. C.S. Lewis kind of put together what we call, Josh McDowell calls it, the trilemma. Either he's Lord, or he's a liar, or, you know... He is a lunatic. Lord, liar, lunatic. Because if you say he was just a good man, Jesus is just a good man, a good teacher, good moral example. But he claimed to be God, clearly. And if he's just a good man, he could not be God. That means he's a liar. Or worse, C.S. Lewis proposes, that he is a, a, a demon from hell, that's trying to keep you from God. So you have a choice. Do you accept him as Lord or just relegate him to a liar or a lunatic? You don't have any many other choices. That's pretty much it. Lord, liar, lunatic. And I think that it's, it's better to see the evidence is all there. He is the Lord. He has power. He has the ability to transform lives. I've certainly seen it in my own life. I've seen it in other people's lives too. I don't know if there's any way to explain it, but it's Jesus Christ who is able to do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just pray that you will cause us to see that there might be an area where we have not seen correctly. Maybe there's something missing. Maybe we didn't really trust Christ as Savior. Maybe we've gone through the motion, we've gone to church, we've attended Sunday school and, and various events, but never truly, personally trusted in Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to consider. For if we're still given to uh, times of great misery and struggles and, and we cannot find a solution, perhaps we have, we're disconnected from the one who has the solution. So I pray that if anyone is here, that just needs to make sure that they will come to the point of saying, Lord, uh, Lord Jesus, you are indeed the Lord. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. You died for my sins. And I trust you that I have eternal life in your name. And for those of us who know Jesus and know him well, it gives us hope. It gives us freedom from being miserable. We can look and say, this is a bad situation, but I rejoice in the Lord. And I will always do so. For he knows my state. He knows where I am. And he, he's with me all the way. Thank you, Lord, for that. We just pray you will um, uplift us and cause us to, to rejoice in the things that you have blessed us with. We pray this in Jesus' name.